Many years ago, Riley Knight completed a degree in history. This proved to be a bad move, as it was absolutely useless for him. Until now, here's some half-assed history. What's going on, mate? Great to have you along for some more half-assed history. This week on the agenda, going to be having a chat about the Darien Scheme. I've had a couple of requests from a few different listeners uh, for a little bit of Scottish history, and uh, this is definitely one of the weirdest stories from the uh, from the history of Scotland. Uh, Edward Glanville and Ross Aitken both got in touch asking for an episode based on Scotland, and uh, I'll tell you this, I'm very happy to oblige, very happy to oblige indeed. But, you know, look, everyone everyone's heard of William Wallace, people like Rob Roy, Robert the Bruce, very famous too, and uh, maybe we'll get to them in a future episode, but this week, this week, today, I want to talk about something a little bit different. I want to talk about the Darien Scheme, a, a, a surprisingly obscure bit of Scottish history that is both unbelievable and pretty bloody important in the in the course of, uh, of Scottish uh, and British history here. So, again, you may not have heard of it. I'd be willing to put money that most people haven't heard of the Darien Scheme. Um, and if I told you that Scotland, Scotland, right, once made an attempt to link the Atlantic and the Pacific Oceans by establishing a colony in what is now Panama, if I told you this, you'd probably, well, you know, you'd probably believe me because, you know, mate, I'd never lie to you. Come on, don't worry about it. I'd never lie to you. But still, I hope you'd be surprised or at least pretend to be to, for the sake of my feet. Look, whatever. But it's true. It's 100% true. This actually happened at the right there at the end of the uh, end of the 17th century. Uh, Scotland had a red-hot go at setting up a colony on the Isthmus of Panama, modern-day Panama there. Uh, and it was, uh, as you might have guessed, a colossal failure, complete failure it was. Um, the Darien Scheme, as it was as it was known, uh, was one of the principal factors actually in Scotland ultimately agreeing to the Acts of Union in 1707, which unified Scotland and England into one country, Great Britain, and later on the United Kingdom years later. But how and why? How did Scotland's attempt to colonise Central America end up with them capitulating uh, to the English crown? Well, strap yourselves in, my friends. We're off on another adventure on the high seas here. We're going back all the way to the 1690s, so right there at the end of the 17th century, and things aren't going great, generally speaking, in Scotland, in Europe generally, actually. It's, it, it's, been, it's been a hard couple of years. Uh, but Scotland has been has been hit, you know, particularly badly by what's going on. Um, so to put things in context here, as we, we ch- chatted about this a little bit in a previous episode about Mary Queen of Scots and Elizabeth I. Seventeenth um, century uh, during the seventeenth century, uh, England and Scotland are in what was called a personal union. This means that they're separate countries, but they have the same monarch. So in the 1690s, this specifically was William of Orange. Um, so even though William of Orange is, is the King of England and the King of Scotland, he's, he's, he's the King of these two nations separately, right? In, they're in personal union under under one bloke, William of Orange. Um, officially, he wasn't William of Orange. Officially, officially, he was King William III of England and the second of Scotland, which is a bit of a mouthful, so William of Orange makes a lot more sense there. Um, and he's a Protestant king uh, who had been invited. He'd actually been invited to invade England, if you believe it, by uh, Protestant nobles uh, to overthrow King James uh, II and Seventh. so second of England, seventh of Scotland, uh, who they didn't like because he was a Catholic. And when he had a son who uh, overtook uh, the, who became the heir uh, to, to the throne, uh, the, the English nobles ended up inviting this this uh, this Protestant bloke to come in and, and, and overthrow the, the Catholic monarch because uh, he was married to James's daughter. William was married to the daughter of King James. And so uh, William jumps on his boats, 1688, 
get stuck into his father-in-law with glorious revolution deposing Catholic James. William now then becomes both King of Scotland and England, as I say, both separate countries, and he rules as co-monarch with his wife Mary, who again was the was the daughter of James. Um, but when she dies in 1694, he goes it alone. So at the time of our story now, it's just King William on the throne. King William, again, the third of England, second of Scotland. And I'll tell you this. He is ruling. Uh, he's ruling kingdoms that, I, as I said, having a having a bloody hard time of it. Between uh, between 1695 and 1697, there are huge famines throughout Europe, and and this comes after years and years of religious civil wars up and down England and Scotland. And Scotland again, particularly hard pressed by this because a lot of Catholics still up there in the uh, you know up in up in Scotland, up in the north of England as well. Uh, the the Jacobites they were known as, and so. They're not too happy about this whole kinging situation generally, but they're also not too happy because Scotland is just not in a good place financially. It's not in a good place socially. There's not a lot of food going around. There's a lot of economic hardship. And uh, and generally speaking, they're, they're, they get pretty bloody shafted by the whole situation. Economy's in the poop. They're having a terrible time keeping it all together. But England is doing a, a fair bit better, doing a lot better. They're wealthier. They've got colonies around the world. And they're generally having a much easier time of it. Um, and in characteristic English fashion here, they are giving the Scots a bloody hard time. They're hamstring Scottish shipping. They're cutting them out of European markets and just generally doing what England does best in, you know, keeping the Scots down. So the Scots, they've had enough of this, but rather than, you know, grab the claymores and cover themselves with woad like they would have years ago, this time they decide to beat the English at their own game in the world of trading, in the world of merchants, right? So in 1695, the Company of Scotland is established by the Scottish Parliament. It's largely based on the enormously enormously powerful East India Company. They use that as a sort of template there. Uh, East India Company, I'm sure you know, it's the monopolistic worldwide trading company that was owned by basically a government in its own right almost, but it was technically answerable to the Crown of England there. Um, but the Scots, they're going around raising money wherever they can for their new company, this new company, Scotland. And it's not long before they figure out, or they start to figure out what their first big play is going to be here. It starts with this bloke, a Scottish bloke named William Patterson, who comes up with an idea as to what the company had do. Now, could do. Now, now, he'd been living down in England uh, for quite a while, in London, and he'd actually helped to found the Bank of England. So he has economic credentials coming out his ass. When he goes back up to Edinburgh and says, listen here, all you blokes, I've got a great idea. Tell you what we, tell you, tell you what we need to do do to get Scotland back onto the rails here. We need to you know, get some cheddar in the old back pocket. We need to take to the high seas, right? In London, Patterson had met an explorer called Lionel Wafer, who had told him about a land of this, this paradise land of milk and honey in modern day Panama. The place was called Darien. And Wafer is going on and on and on to Patterson about how perfect this place, with it's got a nice safe bay for the ships, fresh water for a town, perfect place to set up a fort, can be easily defended, great land for farming, you know, the whole shebang. It's all it's just stand, standing there waiting to be claimed. Technically has already been claimed, as we'll come to, but still, this is what Wafer is saying to Patterson. Patterson now goes on to suggest that the Company of Scotland, once it's been set up and funded properly, send an expedition of people to Darien and set up shop there, kick off, kick off a little Scottish colony. The idea is that Scotland, or once the Scots set up their, their new colony, Scotland could then oversee and manage an overland route that connected the Atlantic with the Pacific. And you can, I mean, you can tell this is obviously an excellent idea. There's a, a reason that centuries later we have the Panama Canal. Um, and, and had this worked, it would have revolutionised shipping routes around the world and it would have made the Scots a squillion billion dollars if they'd actually managed to pull it off because of how important it would have been to worldwide trade to link the oceans at this point in history. 
obviously this is because the route around South America, in case you know you might not be aware, the route around South tip of South America, long, dangerous. So Patterson reasons. He says, listen, we managed to connect these two oceans with an overland route once we set up our uh, set up our little colony there in uh, you know down there in Darien. We'll be able merchants will be able to get their goods from one ocean to the other quick, more quickly, more quickly, safe, more safely, easy, right? Um, and it would be enormously lucrative because, of course, they can you know tax the crap out of all the stuff that's going across there like that, make make themselves so much money. There was a very small problem there. You know, I said it was unclaimed, not quite unclaimed. The the mighty Spanish Empire and their uh, d- dominion of New Granada technically had this this area as part of its uh, part of its territory. There, they were claiming it, but you know, whatever. That's very much a future problem, and we all know we all know how important it is to live in the here and the now. That's why I have a weekly history podcast. Anyway, Patterson's plan, Patterson's plan to put it, you know, pretty bloody mildly is enormously, enormously popular. People are loving it. They like, they can't get enough of him. Get around him. Patterson, you bloody legend. What a terrific idea. Can't believe it. Let's go to Darren. Let's get it done. Set up this, uh, you know, the, the bloody Panama Canal 1.0. Fantastic. Not actually a canal they were going to set. And obviously they didn't have the engineering to dig a canal out, you know, 300 years ago. Anyway, the company of Scotland, they start going around raising money for the Darien scheme. They're canvassing merchants and investors in Hamburg, in Amsterdam, London, all over the place, all the major trading centres are trying to raise money. Now, initially, people very, very hot on the, the idea. They're loving it. They think it's a fantastic idea. They're chucking money hand over fist at, uh, at the Company of Scotland. But then, all of a sudden, the money stops coming in. It stops out of nowhere. It just The, the money just dries up, and I'll tell you why. After the Darien scheme was announced, right, England's response to it was not particularly enthusiastic. I can tell you this. King William in particular, he didn't much like the idea of Scotland starting up a lucrative colony in Central America, despite, let's not forget, despite being the bloody king of the place, he still doesn't want Scotland to, you know, go and, and, and make themselves a couple of extra dollary dues. There are a couple of reasons for this. Uh, obviously, the biggest one, the national pastime of the English is pissing off Scots, Welsh, Irish, Australians, New Zealanders, more or less bloody everyone. That's reason number one. But there are you know, a couple of other ones as well. Firstly, at this stage, England is at war with France. So they don't want to step on the toes of Spain and have Spain dragged into the war with, with France. Obviously, the other national pastime of England is being at war with France. Um, so they, they don't want to step on the toes of, of Spain, who again claim this area. There's a delicate diplomatic situation going on here. And, and so William's not too happy about compromising English interests for Scottish interests there. But secondly, the East India Company is objecting very bloody strongly to these upstart Scots thinking they can walk in and kick off their own trading company. No thanks, mate. Don't need the extra competition. And William, unfortunately, he takes the side of his bigger, richer and more prosperous kingdom, carrying on the grand tradition of, again, these English monarchs in offering Scotland nothing more than a tall, frosty middle finger. Um to give you a little bit more context for the, the whole the sort of the, the economic philosophies of the time here, um, at the time there was a, a, this, this, this doctrine of mercantilism. Rather than capitalism, which is well accepted and, and, and you know you, it, it governs market forces around the world today, capitalism, mercantilism is slightly different because it views uh, uh, the, the economic sphere, it views an economic uh, you know an ecosystem. As, as closed and zero sum. So in a mercantile economic system, you can't benefit 
unless someone else suffers. So as in like you can't increase your wealth without the uh, without decreasing someone else's wealth. The idea of capitalism is of course that wealth, you know, that the, the whole rising tide raises all boats and that wealth begets wealth and and you know things grow out of nowhere effectively. And whether that's true or not, again, it's not half-assed economics, half-assed history, but at the time the, the the guiding philosophy very much was there's only so much pie to slice up and the pie isn't growing. So the East India Company very heavily uh, lean on King William to say no, shut down this company of Scotland because any slice of the economic pie that they're getting is one that we're not accessing instead. And unfortunately for Scotland, William comes in line with what the East India Company, East India Company want there. So William, the East India Company and the English Parliament, they force all of the English-based investors to pull out of the company of Scotland. They get their money back and they, they actually don't, they, all that money that's been invested is returned to them because, again, the, the Parliament effectively makes it illegal for English people to invest in, in the Scottish company there. Secondly, however, f- uh, when it comes to the foreign investors, in, you know, the Dutch investors and whatever else, uh, the Engl- English merchants and, and the East India, India Company threatened to embargo. They threatened not to trade with these uh, with these merchants in, in you know Hamburg and Amsterdam, wherever else like that. And of course, this this scares the living daylights out of these merchants who don't want to lose the the the, the you know potentially lucrative English markets there. So they actually back out as well. So Scotland is left on Pat Malone, just like this. There's no bankroll for the Darien scheme. It's, sh- it's shrunk back to nothingness here. But no worries, Scotland can do it by itself. Not a problem. Patterson, the Company of Scotland and the Scottish Parliament, they open up investment to the common folk of Scotland itself. And this idea is so popular that all people of all walks of life, rich, poor, everything in between, they are chucking money towards the company. They're all wanting, you know, shares in this new company here. Uh, even, as I say, poorer families, they're scrapping together a bit of cash to invest in the scheme because they're so into this idea of setting up this Scottish colony. In just a few weeks, they raised the equivalent of tens of millions of pounds in today's money, right? Perhaps as much as 50 or 60 million pounds they ran in just a couple of weeks, which is a huge percentage of the total wealth of the country. The estimates I've so I've done, did, the reading that I did it indicated that there's no real consensus on how much wealth this was in, in terms of a gross proportion of the of the, of the Scottish uh, of the Scottish wealth. Whether it was as low as 10%, as high as 50%, probably in the middle somewhere, 20, 30% mark seems reasonable, which is still obscene. It's still a huge amount of money for people to be pouring into this venture. But hey, it worked. Nothing unites Scotland more than sticking it to the English, even even today. So I suppose that you know this goes a long way in explaining why people open up their piggy banks like this. So. The Company of Scotland is now flush with cash and it is finally ready to start putting everything together for this trip to the Isthmus of Darien. So now that they're newly cashed up here, the Company of Scotland starts to uh, sort themselves out with a fleet of ships. They, they put together an, an, an outfit of uh, five ships, all in all, and they also put together a crew to take them over to Central America and a bunch of, of settlers and, and colonists and, and what have you. And, and, and all around, all up, it was around uh, 1,200 people that are recruited for this adventure. Many of them have worked as soldiers. Some of them had slightly checkered backgrounds for the stuff they'd apparently got up to during the you know religious skirmishing and, and civil strife over the years. But overall, 
you know, even if the, it hasn't sort of set the greatest tone for the voyage, uh, you know, with all the with a little bit of infighting amongst the settlers and and and, and colonists there as they as the you know even before they've left, a little bit of unrest amongst the colonists they board whatever. But sure enough, the expedition it gets going and they set sail uh, all the same in July uh, sixteen ninety eight uh, under the command of Commodore Robert Pennekewick. Now I have to say this: it doesn't get off to a very good start. They leave Leith near Edinburgh and they have a very unpleasant bloody time of it sailing south around Scotland and England, taking care to avoid any special interest in English ships, because of course we know the English are dirty with the Scots at the moment for uh, you know for their for their attempts to set up this company, whatever else. But all the same, they head out to the Atlantic uh, with only two people knowing the exact location of their destination, William Patterson, who is on board with his wife, um, and Commodore Pennekewick, uh, who again had been given these orders uh, in a sealed package before leaving. So these were the only two blokes who actually knew where they were heading to. The journey across the Atlantic, uneventful, you know, if a little bit unpleasant, whatever, but after a few months, these five ships, they make it to their destination more or less in one piece. Unfortunately, around 70 of the colonists have died on the way, which I guess... It's actually quite a fair few, actually. Maybe it's not fair to say they arrived in one piece because, yeah, 70 of them have, have, have carked it. But the rest, of them, the rest of them, they make it there safe and sound on the 2nd of November, 1698. Now, they proudly claim the land for Scotland. They name it Caledonia. And immediately they get underway with building a fort, which they call Fort, fort St. Andrews and a town, which they decide to call New Edinburgh. They park up the ships in this little bay that the whole town is going to be based around. They find a nice spot for a fort. They dig some ditches, build a watchtower on top of a hill as part of defences, and they get underway with establishing this uh, this little settlement now down here in, uh, you know, in, uh, in Darien. So, unfortunately, as you might have guessed, as you already know, right, as the weeks pass... As the weeks turn into months, the wheels start to come off yeah, pretty pretty bloody quickly because the spot they'd chosen was uh, less than ideal, to put it diplomatically. They realise this pretty quickly when they try to get some farming going. Uh, obviously, they've been told that, you know, the land is rich and arable and, uh, and, and fertile, ready to go with all sorts of agriculture, but... Uh, that is just not so. That is just not not the case. They're trying to plant corn and yams, but not only do they have to sort of clear out this thick jungle-like vegetation in order to just access the ground, the ground itself not particularly fertile. It's not great for farming at all. And so the crops that they manage to raise, if they raise any at all, are very, very poor. They're not very good at all. And to make things worse, the whole place is filled with mosquitoes and a huge proportion of the colonists actually succumb to, you know, all kind of colourful colourful disease, mainly malaria, uh, while they're working away and they're dropping like flies. I mean, you've got 10 colonists dying per day. It's, it's, it's miserable. It's utter misery here. They're having a terrible, terrible time. And a few months into 1699, remember, they arrived in November, so just a couple of months after they've, uh, they've you know, set up shop here, uh, torrential tropical rains begin to fall every day, making the conditions even worse. All the diseased people are, you know, getting sicker and the people who aren't sick are, you know, running, the, running a high risk every day of, of, of becoming unwell. And by March, over 200 colonists have died. So there's been a pretty significant chunk taken out of the, uh, you know, the population of this small settlement already. Now, the colonists, they did have a backup plan to deal with failed crops and the like and uh, as they you know they aren't able to grow enough food on their own they decide to put this plan into action and to trade with the locals so they brought over before leaving that actually loaded up the ships with all sorts of just rubbish basically they thought they were going to be able to trade with the uh, with the indigenous population there uh, things like combs and mirrors and all sorts of other little trinkets that they brought over from europe um but uh, the indigenous population as it turns out, not super interested in these things, not really interested in what the Scots had brought at all. And uh, this made the colonist situation all the worse because they were pretty sure they were going to be able to trade for food and, and, and what have you and resources. 
But the locals just aren't having any of it. They're just like, no, mate, it's all right. You can keep your mirror. I don't, you know, I'm quite happy with my plantains over here. I'm going to go and have a nice dinner. So, yeah, catch you later. Um, because of this, the colonists are, are getting increasingly desperate. And what they decide to do is they decide to send off some of the ships that they've got to trade for supplies from nearby colonies in the Caribbean and, and, and what have you here. This didn't end up, unfortunately for the colonists, this did not end up being a great move. Obviously, they load up the ships what they can. They're going to go and try to trade or buy supplies, whatever else, resources. But it doesn't work because King William has by now decreed, obviously, in order to guarantee the failure of the Scottish colony, that no English ship or colony was to trade with the Scottish. And I'd like to point out once again at this, at this, at this stage, I'd like to point out that this guy was, do not forget, the King of Scotland, which makes his, his, his total determination to see Caledonia fail a really, really nasty piece of business. He's condemning his own people effectively to a very, you know, to a, a life tribulation and hardship here. It's terrible. It's a really, really, you know, not a great move here from William, I would say. Anyway, the ships, they sail off, and the, but they completely fail to have any kind of success with trading for supplies. And one of the ships doesn't even make it back to the colony. It's captured by the Spanish and its crew are, are imprisoned, right? And uh, as a result of this, things are only going from bad to worse in, in Caledonia. It's becoming increasingly clear the colony was going to fail. And as a result, the, uh, the colonists, they become increasingly desperate. They're hunting giant turtles just for food. They're forced to eat these disgusting rotting supplies that are filled with you know bugs and uh, and mold and all that sort of stuff and even after the locals actually came to their rescue and started giving them food as gifts they, they could see these poor scots are on the other side of the world didn't know how to survive so the locals they're like geez we've got to look after these people they came over and gave them food just like that bloody good of them i would say but it's still not enough and the Scots realise that their backs are against the wall and they're actually having they're, they're having to have serious thought about giving it up so as the most of the colonists are starving or dying of disease, the crops aren't growing, they're down a ship, they're running out of supplies. And with all this going on, there's now another piece of news that is finally the straw that... That's actually, it's not a straw, it is a log. It's an enormous tree trunk that breaks the camel's back. They get wind of the fact that the Spanish are now planning to attack the Scottish colony. Because again, remember, they're in technically they're in New Granada, this, this whole area that is claimed uh, by the Spanish Empire. And so the Spaniards are going to come down and just say, listen, mate, we got here first. Actually, well, first is a subjective view to take of things, but all the same, they were going to come down. I'm not going to get into the politics of the colonial era, but all the same, the, Span the Spanish were going to come down and say, nick off because, you know, we were here already. So news of this Spanish attack, it puts the, it scares the living daylights out of the, uh, out of the poor old Scots there. And they decide, the, the surviving, the ones who have survived at least, they decide they've had enough. Enough's enough. They drag themselves back onto the ship. They abandon Caledonia eight months after the colony was established in July, 1699. They've packed up all their, uh, they've packed up their bags and they've moved away. Of the 1,200 colonists who set off, only about 300 actually survived. Most of them sailed to a small town in England, in New England, sorry, on, in, uh, you know, in, the, in the new English colonies over there on the other side of the Atlantic. You may have heard of this small town. About 5,000 people lived there at the time. It's called New York. <laughs> and there they receive another piece of news after you know, dragging themselves up to the northern Atlantic and falling off their ships into, the, uh, into this English colony, basically. They therefore, oh, you, you're the blokes from Caledonia. We just found out there's a couple of supply ships heading down there right now to go and resupply you blokes, and you're here instead of back down there. Oops. So 
these supply ships, these resupply ships that had been sent over by the Company of Scotland, they had no idea that the colony had failed. And so they're now bearing down to this area where the Spaniards are patrolling around, you know, trying to assert their, uh, their, their authority on the region. And as a result of this, one of the original colonists, Thomas Drummond, he decides that he doesn't want to just abandon the, the resupply ships to their fate. He gets two new sloops, right? He gets two small boats or two small ships together here and takes, you know, as, ma as many people as will come with him. And he sails back down towards Caledonia to meet with this resupply mission so they're not completely wasting their time. But he ends up being too late. Because check this out. The resupply mission, it reaches Caledonia in August 1699. And rather than, you know, this prosperous colonial town that they're expecting, they instead find not very much more than an overgrown ruin of a town accompanied by hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of graves. Now, you won't be surprised to learn these resupply ships, they did not stick around for very long, or, well, to be very specific, one of them didn't stick around for very long. The other one stuck around for quite a while, as it turns out, because it accidentally caught fire and burnt, <laughs> burnt to ashes and obviously had to be abandoned. But the first ship and the rest of the resupply crew, they turn around, they set sail, and uh, their mission, obviously, you know, a, a complete failure. The colony had be, been abandoned. There's nothing there for them to, to resupply, so they, they head off uh, back across the Atlantic. By the time Drummond arrived in his sloops, he doesn't find any sign at all of this resupply mission, except, of course, for the charred husk of the ship that had burnt down. Oops. Now, the interesting thing, the interesting thing about the total failure of both the first expedition and the resupply mission is this. Obviously, an abject failure in every, in every sense, right? But people in Scotland had no idea how bad things had been in their new colony. They had no idea at all that they'd failed like this. The Company of Scotland, in fact, had already outfitted and sent off a second expedition a short time after the colony was abandoned, obviously not knowing it was abandoned, with 1,300 people setting sail from the west coast of Scotland this time, near Glasgow, um, four ships laden with supplies and materials, new settlers, new colonists, and they made their way across the Atlantic, arriving on the 20th of November, 1699. Now, once again... Rather than finding a successfully established colony, these poor settlers on the new ships instead find an abandoned ruin inhabited by those who were brave enough to go back in the sloops with Drummond. Nonetheless, despite the conditions, despite how terrible it looks at this point, the new colonists, they go ashore and they attempt to rebuild the town, repairing the huts, repairing the buildings that were falling to ruins there. And most importantly, they go to work on outfitting the fort in readiness for a Spanish attack. The attack hanging over their heads like this was putting a lot of strain on the colonists, a lot of strain on the leaders and the officers, and they're all scrapping. The, the morale is very low. It's not a very not a very good vibe down there in New Edinburgh at this stage. They didn't know what they were going to do about it, but they knew that the Spanish attack would come. Ultimately, some of the settlers, they decide they've had enough and they get onto uh, some of the ships. They, they, they take to the ships and they flee. They don't want to stand against the Spanish, but others unite under the command of a bloke named Alexander Campbell of Phonab. Campbell decides that he's had enough of waiting around for this so-called Spanish attack. He's had enough of, you know, this, of, of, of you know, living in fear, of, of, of trembling, uh, you know, at the, at the prospect of this Spanish attack. And so he decides instead, going to get in the front foot, all offense, no defense, and he decides to go and crack some Spanish skulls. He gets a, a group of men together and he heads off to a small Spanish outpost at, uh, at Tubacanti in January 1700. And it's there... He gets amongst it in a major way. He gives the Spanish what for, and he sends a clear message. Don't mess with the Scots, mate. They'll headbutt you into oblivion. Don't come mess with us, all right? Leave us alone. 
Unfortunately for our mate Campbell, while he's fighting, he's also injured you know, during this raid and he ends up coming down with a fever poor bloke and he's, you know, absolutely incoherent and his lead, his, his brief spell of brilliant leadership comes to a, uh, comes to a, a very abrupt end as a result of that. And of course, of course, it gets worse. Of course it gets worse because the Spanish, as it turns out, they, they're not too keen. They're not, they're not about to take this raid lying down, not too keen on what the Scots have done here. And so they finally get up and about and they finally uh, get to get around to this attack that they'd been threatening to, to make on the Scottish uh, colony for, you know, for so long. So they sent a contingent down to this tiny little Scottish settlement. And the Scots, they really, they see the Spanish ships approaching. They all flee into this fort that they'd built and they hold out there against the Spanish for an entire month, which is not a bad effort against, you know, again, one of the most powerful nations uh, you know, on the seas at this stage. They held out for a month against the Spanish seas, but of course, people are dropping like flies. Disease is still getting them and they're running low on supplies. And when the Spanish threaten to attack uh, the fort and give no quarter unless the Scots surrender, the colonists, they finally throw in the towel. The Spanish, they let the Scottish get back onto their ships, take all their stuff with them, and they watch as the Scots sail away from Caledonia. They sail away from Darien, for the very last time. I began the episode by talking about how the Darien scheme ended up having enormously important consequences that ripple throughout history. And it, it might not be immediately obvious what they are. But as you know, as you imagine here, these Scots getting back on their ships, their tail between their legs, sailing off onto the horizon, leaving behind their failed colony for the last time, never to look back, never to return, of course, and Spanish dominance of that area continued for a long time after this. How does that then sort of inform, uh, you know, the, the history books? How does that then go on to influence the, the path that Scottish and, and English and indeed British history takes in the coming years? The utter failure of this effort to set up a, uh, set up a colony, right, it landed Scotland in total financial ruin. Remember how much money people had been handing to the Company of Scotland in order to get, to get the company off the ground? It, it was all gone. It was all gone. People, we're not just talking about the government being skinned here. We're talking about regular, normal Scottish people who had ruined themselves by putting their life savings into the company and the Darien scheme that was supposed to be so profitable, so wealthy. And after the failure of this scheme, Scotland just didn't, it just didn't have the resources to continue to survive as an independent nation. It just didn't. It just didn't have enough money to continue to exist effectively. I mean, that's a very simple way of looking at it, but but ultimately that's what it boils down to. It obviously didn't happen overnight, but the financial devastation this whole endeavour brought about, it put Scotland on a course of more or less forced union with England because in the years between 1700 after the colony failed and 1707 when the Acts of Union was signed, the Company of Scotland, it tried to raise more money with other trading ventures and, and, even, and even petitioned King William to support them in having another go down in Darien because they still thought it was worth it, right? But William refused. He refused, of course. He refused. He said that they'd gotten off lightly last time and any more fiddly farting down around there would, you know, definitely result in a war with Spain, which just wasn't happening. He didn't want that to happen at all. And as the years pass and as, you know, Scotland's situation fails to improve in any meaningful way, it becomes more and more clear the only way that they could recover and seek any kind of real prosperity again was through a union with the rich and powerful England. That's the only way that they really had, had to go that wouldn't result in their own annihilation. So... Ultimately, and after an enormous amount of debate and you know, a great big carry-on, the Acts of Union were passed by the English and Scottish parliaments in 1707, creating the new nation of Great Britain. And as part of the deal, the new British government paid off all of the old Scottish government's debt that had been brought on by the Darien scheme and managed to, again, help Scotland on the path back towards economic recovery as now part of Great Britain. 
There was, however, you won't be surprised to learn, there was no small amount of resentment and unhappiness with many of the Scots. And this unhappiness has never really fully departed. As someone who lives in Scotland today, I can tell you that 300 years later, the discontent at, 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 that many Scots feel as, as being almost forced, shackled to, to being part of Great Britain is, uh, is quite strong in certain quarters. And that explains, you know, the referendum that Scotland uh, had about their, their future a few years ago and, and the new one that's on the horizon as well, according to the Scottish government as well. So it is deep set. It's very deep in the, in the bones of, of, of many people in Scotland three centuries after this whole, t- uh, this whole thing took place. And, uh, I think it's fair enough. You can you can trace this this history back to this point in time, the Darien scheme here. Because after all, think about this: it was England that had more or less guaranteed the failure of the Darien scheme, thanks to the threats of the East India Company and the refusal of King William to support the entire endeavour. The, the the Darien scheme was was doomed to failure because of the way that the English interfered in in what was going on, and 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 this means that that England bailing out Scotland, if you want to look at it, by accepting it into the Union of the Crowns and and ultimately creating the state of Great Britain, it, it's a it's not really the the great magnanimous uh, gesture that you might look at it being because. England was the the reason, effectively, that the that I'm not saying the Darien scheme would have necessarily conceded if England hadn't interfered, but England certainly more or less guaranteed its failure by uh, you know refusing any kind of support or or assistance and, and actively hindering its uh, its efforts. So, despite the hardship. The poor conditions and the bad luck of all the Scottish settlers in Caledonia, it, it, is, it isn't actually unreasonable to think that their colony perhaps could have succeeded had it not been effectively cut off and isolated from the, from the rest of the world. Scotland was going at it alone here because of England's interference. And I think that's an important lens to look at the Acts of Union through uh, in remembering why Scotland ultimately ended up in the position that it's still in now three centuries later. Just imagine. Just imagine how different the world would be had Scotland managed to uh, set up an effective precursor to the Panama Canal, one of the most important things in in, international shipping today. Imagine how different the world would be if the Panama Canal had been set up effectively over 200 years before it was first opened. You'd have all the bloody Panamanians. They'd be there cutting about in kilts, drinking iron brew, eating munchie boxes, headbutting people who go for the wrong soccer team, all the rest of it. But at the end of the day... The Darien scheme, the failure of the Darien scheme and the way that it influenced the Acts of Union, you know, years later, there, seven years later, the, this shaped the, the history of, of, of Scotland and England and, and, and the United Kingdom, heavily shaped, heavily influenced by this mad idea that Scotland should colonise Central America all those years ago. By bankrupting itself as part of the Darien scheme, Scotland, again, was forced into a union with England that over three centuries later still breeds resentment amongst many Scots. And much of this resentment comes because it comes as a result of, of, of the, the financial position that Scotland was forced into after the Darien scheme and its direct, uh, and its direct consequences. And I think more than anywhere else, the, the, the Scottish sentiment, the Scottish approach or the, the feeling about this whole, uh, this whole situation is summed up, of course, by the famous Scottish poet, Robbie Burns, who wrote, We're bought and sold for English gold. Such a parcel of rogues in a nation.
But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That is the story of the Darien scheme. A little bit of Scottish history. And once again, I'd like to thank uh, Edward Glanville and, and Ross Aitken for getting in touch with me and, and suggesting some Scottish history. I'll do more. I'll certainly do more in the future. So you can look forward to that. But for now, that is that for this week. Thanks to all the people who get in touch. Not just, uh, uh, you know, not just these two blokes there, Ross and, uh, and Edward. If you want to get in touch in the same way that these two blokes did, uh, you can go to the website, halfhousehistory.net is the best place to find all the old uh, all the old shows and that sort of stuff. You also find it on uh, iTunes and on Spotify. And if uh, if I'm not on your favourite podcast provider, please let me know and I'll do my best to get on uh, onto it as well. And it's on that website that there's a contact form where you can uh, you can email me directly and uh, I'll send you out some stickers if you want. You just need to send me your, uh, your IRL address and I'll send you some IRL stickers as well. Uh, and again, ideas about shows or feedback and all that sort of stuff very much appreciated but that is that for another week uh, special thanks of course to the patreon people supporting me on patreon thank you so much if you want to chuck me a couple of a couple of bucks a month for uh, for this podcast you're more than welcome no no obligation it's always going to be free but i'll tell you what i certainly do appreciate the the extra support from people there but as i say that's it we're going to close things out as usual with a question asked on reddit uh reddit historian bzh underscore jjm has a question related to the scottish monarchy which we've discussed a little bit today they want to know <clears throat> if malcolm the fourth was the king of scotland in the middle ages and malcolm the tenth was the king in the 1960s what happened to all the malcolms in between <laughs> <laughs>